Good morning, beloved. Join me and open your Bibles, please, to uh, John chapter 13. We'll be finishing John chapter 13 today, and we'll be covering uh, the last section of verses, verses 31 through 38. If you're new with us or uh, joining us for the first time online, I want to uh, welcome you, of course, this morning. Um, we've been going uh, verse by verse through the Gospel of John for... Um, well, I don't know, about a year now. And though each week uh, we get a new section of verses that um, might seem altogether um, random, um, I have seen God move too many times to think what he has for us is anything but divinely orchestrated. Um, you know, two weeks ago we had just gotten started on this section um, called the Book of Glory, the second half of the Gospel of John, the Book of Glory, in uh, chapters uh, 13, 14, 15, 16, really read like a love letter from the Lord Jesus Christ to the church. Uh, we were finally finished dealing with those dreaded Pharisees for a while. And then last week, here we are dealing with Judas the betrayer and devil possession. And I was praying all that week, the week before last, preparing that uh, God had something specific for us in it. And boy, a number of you confirmed that that was just the message that needed to be heard. So I'm thankful for a body who has ears to hear, that God's word is living, it's active, it's sharper than any two-edged sword, discerning the thoughts and tensions uh, of the heart, and is profitable for teaching, correcting, training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And I'm excited for what God will do with these verses that he has before us today. So let's begin by reading uh, John 13, 31 through 38, once through, and after we can look at the verses more carefully. John 13, beginning in verse 31, this is the reading of God's holy word. When he, Judas, had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified. And God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Now, before we get into our text today, let me kind of set the scene for you. 
Um, Jesus and his disciples are in the upper room somewhere um, in Jerusalem. Uh, it's a secret location where only the Lord Jesus Christ um, is, and he's now um, gathered together with his closest disciples. It is Thursday night of the Passion Week. Uh, Jesus is now just hours away from the cross in what Jesus calls his hour. In verse 1, we read, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. His hour, then, is a reference to his crucifixion and subsequent resurrection and then ascension to glory. Jesus knew that his hour had come. Now, of course, last week we saw Jesus put all this into motion as he identified Judas as the one who would betray him. And we read down in verse 27, when Satan entered into Judas, Jesus said, what you do, do quickly. And immediately Judas went out, and in verse 30, John adds, and it was night. So now that Judas, the false disciple, has been exposed and he has left, Jesus now turns his attention to the true disciples, to the eleven, where over the next four chapters he will instruct them on what it means to be a true disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he will fill them in on the divine promises and power of the coming Holy Spirit, and he will dispense to them on their behalf. Up until this time, following Jesus meant, well, following him from town to town and listening to his teaching. But in just a few hours from now, Jesus will die his sacrificial death upon the cross for the sins of his people, and life for the disciples is about ready to change in a drastic way. Jesus is leaving them in the physical sense. And though he has been telling them this for quite some time, before the coming of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, they just can't grasp what this means. They really can't. So, so starting here in, in chapter 13, Jesus demonstrates for them what a true disciple of the king looks like as he became the humbled, lowly servant and he went around washing his disciples' feet. So the question then becomes, how can I know and, well, how can the rest of the world know that I am a true disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, for starters, Jesus said, in verse 16, a servant is not greater than his master. He said, I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. So in this representation of the lowly servant, the washing of the feet, we see this example. And if this is the, what we should then do, we should expect to see a true disciple uh, is one of lowliness, kindness, humility, um, service, um, esteeming others better than yourselves, love. He says in our verses today in verse 34, love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know 
you are my disciples. This is the, the outward reality of the inner transformation. Because it isn't so much about our profession. Lots of people claim to be Christians who are not. It isn't by the fact that we tend some local church or I go to I go to the Athens Cross Church. They are true believers there. And it isn't because we try to live a certain set of belief or ethics that we assign to and we say, oh yes, this is what I do. It's not so much about the outward, it's about the transformation inward. It is about the hearts. We need a whole new birth. We need to be cleansed and given a brand new heart. It, it, it's a, a spiritual, a supernatural spiritual transformation that takes place. And God takes that, that heart of stone out of the sinner and, and puts in a new heart, a heart of flesh, Ezekiel 36 says, and he cleanses us from all uncleanliness. He gives the new heart and we get new desires. And it's the Holy Spirit who then causes us to walk according to the statutes of God and to obey him. It's an issue of the heart. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new what? He's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Now, out of this new life comes all the spiritual graces then. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control against such things. There is no law. But, but at the most basic level, at the foundational level, the evidence of this transformation can be summed up in one four-letter word. It is love. Love that is foundational of all of it. It is love that demonstrates the new heart. In fact, Paul says in Romans 13, whoever loves one another has fulfilled the law. Love can do what the law could not do. So true followers of Christ are described as those who not only love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, but who also, and then this is attached to it, love your neighbor as yourself. But Jesus is going to take this one step further. So there's a, there's a Godward direction. There's a horizontal uh, Godward direction of this love, but it's not limited to that. There's also the, the manward direction of this love as well. And so as we get into our verses this morning, Jesus here furthers this. Love is the marker of what it means to be a true follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in verses 31 to 32, we see first the focus is on the glory of Christ. The glory of, of Christ. Notice in verse 31. It says, when he, Judas, had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him 
at once. So first, let's just deal with Judas one last time quickly here before, before we get to all this wonderful glory. It says, when he, Judas, had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified. So Judas takes the bread, and he leaves to do what he was divinely appointed to do, to betray the Lord Jesus Christ. And I just want to make a quick point here that only the true disciples, the eleven, remain. Only the true disciples remain in the upper room. They are still reclined with the Lord Jesus Christ at the table as Judas departs. And the point I want to make is this. True disciples remain. That's the point. True disciples remain. It's not about how we start the Christian walk. It's about how we finish. True disciples will abide. They will continue in God's word. Jesus said back in chapter 8 of John's gospel, you'll remember, he said, if you abide in my word or if you continue in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So it's not just the, the perseverance of the saints. It's the perseverance of God in the saints. Jesus will say in John 15, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you are, remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. All right, so I just wanted to point that out quickly. True disciples will remain True disciples abide in Christ. True disciples will continue on in his word. Now they might wander. Oh, sheep, yeah, they're definitely prone to wander at times. But a true disciple, a true sheep, will always hear the voice of the good shepherd and he'll return. Jesus said in John 10, verse 27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hands. Okay? So, now that Judas has gone out, he's gone into the darkness, he's gone away from the one true light, which is Christ, and with the cross just hours away, the Lord now turns his heart to his own, to the true disciples that are left. And in verse 31, the dinner conversation now begins to change to the fullness of the glory of God. He says, now it's the Son of Man glorified. And Jesus is saying, now in two ways here, I would suggest. First, he's saying now, because now that Judas has departed, he has begun to trigger the events of the betrayal that will ultimately lead the Lord Jesus Christ to the cross. It is now in motion, now. And this is the reason why I came. Jesus was born to die. Matthew 1.21 says, You shall name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And so what Jesus is saying is now. Now is the time. Now is the time that the Son of Man will be glorified. And this word glorified is the word doxka. And, and he uses it five times here in 31 and 32. It's glorified, glorified, glorified. And, and this word doxka means properly to have a right opinion of God. It's the idea of recognizing God's t 
total substance and his total value. So glorifying God would then mean to treasure him, to value God for who he truly is and all that he is. It is personally acknowledging God in his, in his truest essence and form. The idea here of doxa is that God is altogether, we're just saying, worthy. He is worthy that whether you eat or drink, whatever that we shall do, do it all for the glory of God. So there, there, there is a weightiness to this word. There is a weight behind this word that God alone is worthy of our praise. In fact, uh, worthy, you can get the root there, the root word of worship. So when we all gather together here on the, the Lord's Day, it is because he is worthy. He is worthy of our praise. He is worthy of our worship. And then it is in two ways. The, the intrinsic words, his worth. This is what we see in Revelations 5, 9. This is his intrinsic words where it says, and they sang a new song saying, oh, you are worthy. Saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And then secondly, there's what's described as his external worth. And we see this in verses like 1 Timothy 6, when Paul talks about this unapproachable light, which is God. He says, he who is blessed and only sovereign, the king of kings and lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light. You see all this glory that's in these verses? Whom no one, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Amen. That is a, a high view of the glory of God. In 1 Corinthians 2, Paul even calls our Lord the Lord of glory. He calls him the Lord of glory. Because glory is so consistent with who the Lord Jesus Christ is. He is the Lord of glory. Now notice... Um, how Jesus uses doxa here. He uses it maybe in two different ways. First, it sounds like maybe he's in the present tense. And then the second is, is maybe more of, of the immediate future tense. First, notice his present tense. In verse 31, Jesus said, Now, now, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. So the question is how? How is the Son of Man going to be glorified now, and, and, God the, and God the Father glorified in him. Well, first and foremost, it is through the cross. It is through the Lord's death. The crucifixion is, is the focal point of all redemptive history. When God himself would provide the lamb as a sacrifice. The, the Old Testament's looked ahead in faith to the cross while we look back at the cross. And it is through the cross that God is glorified. He's glorified in several ways. First, Jesus will reverse the curse of sin that Adam has brought on to the human race. 
Paul talks about this in Romans 5, that Jesus' death would undo all of the sin brought in the fall. Romans 5, verse 17 says, For if by the trespass of one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Second, the death of Jesus also destroyed that power of sin. The power of sin. His death purchased salvation by satisfying the demands of a holy and righteous God and for his justice for all who would believe in him. So at the cross, we see the justice of God. We see the holiness of God. We see the uh, faithfulness of God. And we see most perfectly the love of God. Later on in John 17, verses 4 through 5, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane in this deep, deeply intimate moment as we see the Son praying to the Father. And he says, I glorify you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, O oh Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory, and listen to this, that I had with you before the world existed, before the world was restore that glory that we shared with one another. In everything that Jesus did on earth, he revealed perfectly God's glory. But what the son longed for, once all that the father had commanded him to do was accomplished, was the glory that he had with the father before the world was. But in his incarnation, God the Son gave up all that. He left all that glory that he had with the Father in order to become the perfect sacrifice for sin. Now the world looks at the cross and it says failure. Failure. It says a disgrace, cursed, humiliated, lost. But Jesus looked at the cross here and said, now, now is the Son of Man glorified and God is glorified in him. Amen. Hebrews 12 verse 2 says, For the joy, it was for the joy that was set before him. He endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The joy was the salvation of his people, his elect. And throughout Jesus' life of perfect obedience to the Father, God has been glorified in all that the Son has done. And so we see here that he's using this in sign of a, a present tense, and even a past tense of all the glory that he's already accomplished in his healings and, and science and teaching. And now in verse 32, he kind of switches to the glory a little bit more in the future sense. Notice what Jesus says here in verse 32. He says, if God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. So this, this future glorification then is not some distant event that happens at the end of time in heaven. Rather, it's the series of events that will unfold immediately after the cross. This is the glory in his resurrection, the glory in his ascension, and then finally, there's this abundant glory 
as he's seated on the throne to the right hand of the Father in what's called his exaltation. He's exalted in the throne. And the Apostle Paul has this aspect in, of Christ's glory in mind when he wrote to the Philippians, for this reason also, God has highly exalted him and has given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of who? To the glory of God the Father. Uh, upon the, the Lord's ascension into heaven, God the Father has highly exalted the Son. He has given him the name that is above every name. And, and as this glory goes, Jesus is pronounced Lord, and the glory then comes right back to the Father. It, it's always this back and forth love affair with the Father and the Son. It was to this glory that the Son longed to return to the Father. And though the crucifixion was the point of his greatest humiliation, it was also the event by which the Lord Jesus Christ is most glorified. Later in John chapter 15, and this will lead us into point number two, Jesus will say, greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. Point number one was the glory of Christ. We now come to verses 33 through 35 and the love of Christ. The love of Christ. And just for a moment, I want you to try to get into the heads and into the hearts of these disciples. Okay? As Jesus is dropping these profound truths up upon them. And once again, this theme of love now returns. And, and notice how it happens. Jesus has just told them that now the Son of Man is glorified. Something big is coming. I'm going to be glorified at once. Verse 33. Little children, let a little, a, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Little children, I'm leaving. I'm leaving. Up until now, the mark of your discipleship has been to follow me. If I go up to Galilee, you go up to Galilee. If I go to Samaria, you go to Samaria. Everybody can see my disciples are. They're tagging along behind me. We eat together. We pray together. It's clear as day who my disciples are. But little children, I'm leaving. I'm leaving. I'm not going to be here to follow so I'm giving you a new command. That you love one another just as I have loved you. Jesus is leaving them and in his absence, love is going to bind them together. It is love. Now, I don't know that John ever recovered from the idea that he was a child of God. Okay? In fact, it was so intense and so deep for John 
that I think it shaped his entire life's ministry. And we see this because when John wrote his first letter to the church, 1 John reads like a thesis of this very moment. Take, for example, little children. Um, it is technion in the Greek. It's, it's one word in the Greek, little children. And this word technion isn't used anywhere else in the New Testament except 1 John. And it's used seven times in 1 John. Seven times in five short chapters of his letter. Over and over again, you read in 1 John, little children, abide in him. Little children, guard yourselves. Little children, let no one lead you astray. Little children, here is Jesus in one of the most emotionally charged moments of his departure. And John will never forget that the Son of Man called them little children. And to love as I have loved you. Look also at verse 34. Jesus says something else profound that, that only John would seemingly pick up on if we only looked at the rest of the Bible. Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you. That phrase, new commandment, doesn't occur anywhere else in his gospel. And it doesn't occur anywhere else in all of the New Testament. This term, the, the new commandment, except First and Second John. Listen to what. John says in 1 John chapter 2, verse 7, Beloved, I am writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment. That you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. The Lord's new commandment to the 11 apostles is in one sense, not new at all. <laughs> it's the old commandment of love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. But it was new in the sense that it presented a higher standard for this love based on the example of the Lord Jesus Christ himself, that you love one another just as I have loved you. <laughs> that changes things, doesn't it? It's not your neighbor anymore. It's how the Lord Jesus Christ loved you. The challenge for us, beloved, is to love one another to extent that Christ has loved you. <laughs> and th this isn't a suggestion, this is a command. In fact, did you notice what Jesus attached to it in verse 35? By this, by, by the way that you love one another, by this all men will know that you're real disciples. And I think John pondered this phrase very deeply. He pondered the phrase, my disciples, and he pondered the phrase, they'll know. They'll know. And when the Holy Spirit prompted John, and he wrote a letter about it, we call that letter 1 John. And the point here, again, isn't how will people know that you're aligned with a certain church or a certain membership or a certain congregation? 
how will people know if you ascribe to a certain set of beliefs or ethics? That's not what's going on here. That's not what Jesus or John is dealing with at all. The question is, how will people know if you've been given a new heart that you love the Father, that you love the Son, that you love God's people? How will the people know that you're a real disciple? That's what Jesus is saying. Now, <laughs> I want to let John, the writer of his first epistle, show this to us. He, he helps us better understand John 13, 35. And I want you to see what he makes sense of it. John, prompted by the Holy Spirit, is, was my commentary for this. This is what I studied for. Are, are we good with the Holy Spirit as our commentary? Pretty reliable source. I, I want to share with you just five instances of, of how he makes sense of this verse, John 13.35. Listen, listen for John 13.35 in the words of 1 John that I'm about to read. John 13.35 says, By this, by loving one another just as I have loved you, by this all people will know that you are my disciples. Other people will know, yes, that you're one of his. What does John's epistle say? 1 John 4 verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Yep, sounds like a true disciple. 1 John 3, verse 14. These are all kind of mixed up. So. We know, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. We know because we love. We know because we love. 1 John chapter 3, verse 10. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil? Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. 1 John 4, verse 8. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. 1 John 2, 9 through 10. Whoever says that he is in the light and hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light. First John is a five-chapter exposition of John 13:35. <laughs> How will the world know? How will they know? How will I know that we are truly one of his disciples? They will know, Jesus said. If you have love for one another, just as I have loved you, that's how they'll know. In John chapter 14 and 16, Jesus is going to spend a lot of time talking about the Holy Spirit. He says, I will send you the, the helper, the comforter, and he will teach you all things. It is impossible let me say it again. It is impossible to love anyone with the sacrificial love of Christ apart from the Holy Spirit of God. Upon being justified through faith, the Holy Spirit immediately takes up residence in, within the believer. And the Holy Spirit pours out his love into our hearts, enabling us to love with the love of Christ. Romans 5 says, because God's love has been poured into our hearts 
through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Only by the supernatural work of God, of the Holy Spirit, can you love the way that Christ has called us to love. So the love of Christ is the new standard by which we are to love, beloved. Romans 5 verse 8 says, But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This, beloved, is the sacrificial love of Christ. He didn't wait for us to get it all together. He didn't wait for us to straighten our whole life out. No, while we were yet sinners, that's when he did it. Make some time this weekend. Camp out in 1 Corinthians 13 for a while. If you want to turn there real quickly, you know, most of us know 1 Corinthians 13. We know it so well because you hear it at every wedding. <laughs> but, but what I want you to do is spend some time maybe this week and, and hold 1 Corinthians chapter 13 up to you like a mirror. And ask God to search your heart, to test me, to see if there's any wicked ways in me and to lead me in ways of everlasting. I know I was humbled this week doing it. Let's just read a portion of it together just to remind you. Paul's writing to a, a, a very puffed up church in Corinth. And he's trying to get through to him. 1 Corinthians 13, we'll start in just verse 1. We'll just go through a, a few verses quickly. If I speak in tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. What does real, authentic love look like, Paul? And I, and, I, and, and, and I think Paul knows because Paul, I have a feeling, was a very proud man until he met the risen Christ. Paul says, love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not boast. Love is not arrogant. It is not rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. So by the, by, by the power of the Holy Spirit and as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, we must build one another up. We can't be tearing one another down. The disciples have been arguing all week who would be the greatest in the kingdom. The, the, the upper room reeked of pride. Now was
was the time they needed to lay aside all of their personal differences with each other, and they needed to come together. Little children, yet a little while longer I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Little children, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another, and by this, all people will know that you are my disciples. So section one was the glory of Christ. Section two was the love of Christ. And unfortunately, we'll end the third section with the denial of Christ. The denial of Christ, verses 36 through 38, close out this chapter. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? <laughs> he still, right, doesn't get it. Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. This exchange between Peter and our Lord is recorded in all four of the Gospels, which tells us the importance of it. And in Luke's Gospel, this scene takes place in the 22nd chapter. And Luke 22 is pretty interesting. It opens with the betrayal of Jesus. Satan enters into Judas. Followed by the institution of the Lord's Supper. We see that taking place. And then that's followed by the dispute about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. And then right before they all leave and head out to the Garden of Gethsemane, but before Jesus tells Peter that he's going to deny him three times, something else happens in between. In Luke 22, verse 31, Jesus gives Peter a very sobering warning. And the Lord said to Peter, Simon, Simon, indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And, and what's so interesting about this is in Luke's version, this is immediately followed by Jesus saying, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day before you deny me three times that you even know me. So, Peter, before tomorrow morning sunrise, maybe uh, six hours from now, Peter, you are going to deny ever knowing who I am. God is going to divinely allow this sifting in order to break Peter's prideful heart. God resists the proud. Follow Luke 22 and read it. God resists the proud. They're fighting who's going to be the greatest. But gives grace to who? To the humble. But Jesus said, Simon, I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. He had to break Peter like a wild horse. So instead of fighting about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom, when the Holy Spirit came upon him on the day of Pentecost, Peter was a changed man. Peter got a changed heart, a new heart. 
And he will preach boldly to 3,000 Jews who will be pierced to the heart that day and they will be saved. But Jesus warned him in advance. And if the apostle Peter can fall, anybody can fall. And Peter's fall wasn't necessarily sudden. He was weakened gradually over time by being puffed up in pride. He's always telling Jesus what Jesus should do or what Jesus should think about or what's going to happen next to him. A good analogy of this is when a tire blows out for us on a highway. A blowout usually happens because you've had a, a slow leak in it. And, and it's gradual over time, and so it is here with Peter. And that's what sin does. That's what sin does. It's, it's like a snowball that you roll down a hill and it starts picking up more snow and steam and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger as it rolls. So we see here with Peter as there were multiple steps to Peter's denial. Step one, he was proud. In verse 37, Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Peter was constantly denying the very words of Christ. Jesus just told him in verse 36, where I am going, you cannot follow me now. Earlier, Peter is rebuked by the Lord when Jesus said, I must go to Jerusalem to be handed over the priest and to be killed. But Peter says, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And remember what Jesus said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Peter kept denying what the Lord said must happen. The Lord said, this must happen. No, it will never happen, Lord. Jesus must go to the cross and be the atoning sacrifice for sin. But Peter and the other apostles just don't get it. In Matthew 26, when Jesus says, all of you will fall away from me this night, Peter says, even if all of them fall away on account of you, I never will. <laughs> uh, one writer, James Montgomery Boyce, wrote this. He says, in his overconfidence, Peter failed not at his weakest point, but what he thought was his strongest. Peter was no coward. He believed he was ready to die for Jesus, yet he trembled at the innocent question of a young servant girl. So first he was proud. Second, he was prayerless. Remember in the garden? Jesus says, pray that you will not fall into temptation. And Jesus goes over there to pray. And after Jesus goes off and prays to the Father, he returns. He finds his disciples sleeping. They're not praying. Peter was looking to himself for strength, not turning in prayer. Well, when we're walking around all puffed up in pride, overconfident, not dependent on God in prayer, are we surprised then that the tempter comes in? We shouldn't be. John 18, verse 25 says, Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, You also are not one of the disciples, are you? Peter denied it and said, I am not. Then one of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it. Luke 22, verse 61 adds, And the Lord turned and looked at Peter, and Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And Peter went out and wept bitterly. Wow. 
beautiful in all this ugliness is that the Lord Jesus Christ is faithful. He is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will provide you a way out so that you can endure it. The Lord has an abundance of mercy for his own, and it speaks of the amazing grace of our Lord because we as his little children do fail sometimes, don't we? Well, this would not be the final word on Peter as the Lord Jesus Christ must die first for Peter before Peter can die for Christ. Remember, the Lord prayed for Peter that his faith should not fail. And at the end of John's gospel, the Lord finds Peter in Galilee on the beach. And what did the Lord say to him? Peter, do you what? Do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Peter, do you love me? Yes, I love you, Lord. Peter, do you love me? Yes, I, I, you know I love you. Then feed my sheep. Peter never flinched after that. And when his time had come to an end, he finally did die for the Lord Jesus Christ. History, church history tells us he went to the cross and he was crucified upside down. That he was not worthy to be crucified the same way as his Lord. He preached that great sermon at Pentecost and, and all those great sermons that followed in and out through Jerusalem. Traveled to Rome. What was the difference? Well, the Holy Spirit came and he gave him a new heart. And it never faded. A loyal love to the end. How do you know when someone is a true Christian? Their love focuses on the glory and their love for God and on the well-being of their other brothers and sisters. And it evidences itself in an underlying, enduring, loving loyalty to the Lord Jesus Christ. The greatest distinguishing mark of a true born-again believer is love. The sacrificial love of Christ. Jesus says, you're at the cross today, little children, little children, a new commandment I give to you. That you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. I can't think of a more important message for the church today. I pray that you have been blessed by it. Um, if you need prayers this morning, the leaders will be down front here. We would love to pray with you. Please stand as we sing the song of invitation and give glory to God.